This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Hey, welcome to another Breaking Banks. This week, very excited to do a review of the book, Think Like a Brand, Not a Bank. Jim Maroos joins me as we interview Allison Netzer and Liz High about why they wrote this book. And I don't know the last time that you've looked at a bank brand and said, wow, that blew my socks off. Well, they break down what banks get wrong and how can they be more customer centric. And then in the second segment, Brett King and his futurist co-host interview Glenn White on how brand and advertising will evolve in the metaverse. Are you headed to Finnovate? If so, check out FinTech Fight Club. Lindsay Davis of Atomic Battles Mary Winooski of Bankrate in a not-to-be-missed battle to the end. Interestingly enough, as I was reading the book, when I put my banker hat on, a lot of it felt a, a bit like blasphemy when you talk through some of the things <laughs> on what, you know, what should be intuitive versus not. But when I put my tech hat on, I'm like, well, you know, this is obvious. I'm realizing it's contextual, right? It's not obvious to the banker that these are the rules the world play by. And you have some great principles that we'll get into in a second, but where I want to actually start is one place that you really hooked me. And Liz, I think this was one of your big inputs into the book was you have a chapter titled Don't Be Customer First, right? Now that's blasphemy to the tech world. What could you possibly mean? Because everyone knows you're supposed to be customer first now. Yeah. Well, I think it's something that I've been committed to pretty much all through my career is that the best business is the business that gets the concept of the fair exchange of value, where the, the bank achieves what the bank needs to achieve, the customer achieves what the customer needs to achieve. And you can't make good decisions if you make all your decisions bank first or customer first. So really the principle is around the idea that you need to work out where value exchange occurs. And if you can work that out, those are the best decisions. You know, I'd say you're a venture-backed tech startup if you're customer first, because you don't worry about business model. And you're definitely a bank if all you do is put the institution first. Now, you guys broke down, maybe Allison, you can take this. Mm-hmm. What's the bank's intuition? Kind of like their script of the four, the four holy grails of what they're going to do that is the bank-centric model? Sure. So, you know, in the book, we talk about sometimes doing the counterintuitive thing. So to your point, we've got to kind of ground on what is the the typical bank mindset. And, you know, of course, it's about risk, profit, uh, compliance. And none of these are, are bad things on their own, but they are things, they are not a mindset. And that's where the limitation occurs when your mindset is compliant, when your mindset is risk. Those are factors 
but not a mindset. So doing the counterintuitive thing sometimes means, hey, let's just pretend for a second. What if we had no compliance department? What if what if risk wasn't an issue? What could we do? And it doesn't mean you do whatever that is, but start there with your mindset and work backwards as opposed to trying to carry water uphill and changing a traditional mindset into, into something more modern and more brand focused. You know, it's interesting. You, you talk about that, but isn't that the problem with every element of banking right now? We talk about AI, we talk about branding, we talk about um, customization, everything we're talking about, we need the bankers to get out of the banker mindset. Now that's really hard because, you know, again, the leadership of these banks have been doing this for 35 years. They, they're, I'm sorry, but they're white males that play golf together with their management trainees. And to get those people out of their comfort zone, you know, because even, even when they started, branding was, I wouldn't say looked down upon, but was thought, thought as being the soft stuff. I mean, when I started banking, it was all about advertising branding. And then we've gone completely the other way. And they work together, don't they? They, they do. And, you know, brand is not soft and fluffy, right? That's something we talk about a lot in the book. And I think changing the banker mindset, you ha- changing anyone's mindset, you have to meet them where they are. And so what Liz and I try to do in the book is outside of philosophy and, and sometimes logic, uh, is making the business case for brand. Successful brands speak the language of returns every time. It is a sound business decision. Even if you think it's crayons, it is a sound business decision. And we provide a lot of that that data-backed research in the book. I mean, one of the things that I think I really like is the idea that if you're going to make great decisions, you sometimes have to have very different approaches sitting around a table. So to your point, Jim, there's a a tradition of, you know, the bank mindset and how it's grown up and it's totally valuable. But adding a different mindset into that conversation makes a huge difference. So one of my favorite examples is if you look at, you know, an, an adjacent industry. So you think about Patagonia. Um, you know, a lot of my income goes on their, you know, their equipment and uh, their clothing. Uh, but one of the things I love about them is they have a director of philosophy. And one of the questions that we ask in the book is, can you imagine how different your board meeting would sound if sitting in that room with everybody else was someone who actually was the director of philosophy? And that might seem like a real stretch, but actually in the banking world, it's the same as why not have someone who is the chief digital officer or it's someone who is the chief cultural officer. Then that makes a huge difference. Building on that, you know, if I I hadn't thought of a chief philosophy officer or director of philosophy, but if I think of what sets Sunrise Banks apart in, you know, what they do, the fact that they have Becca as your chief branding officer it's like you know the first time we met we talked like so it's like the cmo she's like no not really we have marketing people and that is different this sits across all of this because our brand is our people it our brand is our product our brand is our messaging like the brand crosses all of that and is that what a director of philosophy would do 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's about the mindset that says, who are we as an organization? And if you're, you know, your boardroom is populated by the head of retail, it's populated by the head of lending, it's populated by another very specific siloed mindset, that you have a set of conversations that are based around that. If you have someone that is about people or someone that is about, you know, the essence of your business, i.e. the brand, then you'll you'll talk about different things. It's not going to change what you do, but it will change the way that you think about it. Jim, I want to throw this to you because you talk to even more bankers than I do on a daily basis, for at least for a number of years. If you asked a bank that question about who are you and what are you, like all I can think is 95% of banks are going to respond, we're a bank. Or they're going to give you their tagline. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, think about this. I mean, I was, when you guys were talking, I'm thinking, we always want to pare it down to the most basic part, which is sometimes a tagline. And employees see this. You know, I was, I was talking to Sonova's Bank the other day, and, and I said, how do you close branches? They said, well, well, the first thing we do, we make sure the employees understand why we're closing the branch and that they're still safe so that they buy into it. And I said, oh, my God, that's, that seemed to be so counterintuitive to me. But then it became so obvious that if your employees don't buy in that they're OK and they're, they're going to be OK with their customer's mindset, then they're going to undermine it for the first time they hear it saying, oh, by the way, we're closing this branch and I'm going to lose my job. And I'm, I'm, I don't know why. And the thing is, if, if you don't sell the whole concept, and that's part of the branding, if you don't sell the whole concept that this is good for the customer, not customer first. This is good for the customer. The customer is going to return that goodness back to us. We've lost that. I mean, I, I was going to ask both of you, you know, and, and it's not something we've discussed before, but can we make it so a bank brand is something somebody can be passionate about? I mean, I think, about, I think about my Nikes. I think about my OnClouds. I think about my, 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 the, the Tommy Bahama shirts and, and slacks I wear. I think about the Lululemon and I go and I'm passionate about those brands. I will go out of my way to wait until the next good thing comes out rather than buy something that I need from the wrong brand. And that's passion. But I, I can't, I, I'm certainly not passionate about either one of my bank brands. On the other hand, I am passionate about Acorns. I mention them probably every podcast and webinar I do because I really like what they do for me. But how do you do that where it doesn't get watered down to be in a tagline that the chairman says, oh, I like that tagline. I'm going to be on TV. I'll talk about it. How do, you, how do you do that? Well, I think you can. So I just want to say at the beginning, in case people stop listening to what I'm talking, you absolutely can. And it is absolutely possible. Um, a lot of what we hit on there was that branding is seen sometimes as, as only being external. And how you feel about something internally manifests externally. So going to your branch example. So the job of brand is, I mean, your employees are your first customers. And in some cases, many cases, your most important customers. So when you're talking about a campaign or you're talking about changing a brand or creating a brand, it actually needs to start with the internal conviction and the internal brand campaign, essentially. That's how you build that momentum. You know, we all know brands that by virtue of their conviction may not even be the best product, 
they're incredibly successful. Whereas some of the best products on the market, no one's even heard of, right? Because it's internal conviction. So I think you can get to that mindset and get away from the, you know, we have an exercise in the book about, okay, think about your bank. What's the first word that comes to mind? You know, and kind of go through it and then doing the same with consumer brands. And and I think it's possible, but it's really seeing branding as something that's both internal and external. And marketers making sure that we're being responsible. The chairman didn't learn the tagline on his or her own. We told it to them. Did we tell them anything else? And so we also have to be responsible for that internally. Well, it's interesting too. Is there any industry that has so many companies selling the exact same thing? Exactly the same thing. I mean, exactly. It's not like, oh, by the way, I'm the linen uh, shirts or I'm the sportswear company or I'm the, the athletic shoe. No, we're all selling exactly the same things. So how do you, and, and, and I'll go back to you, Allison, is how do you make this so it's not a campaign, but it's an overarching brand that all campaigns build on forever. I mean, Nike hasn't changed their brand. They've changed their message. They're, you know, when they come out with a brand new slogan, or not a slogan, but a new commercial, it's still the Nike. It's, right. just, it's just a different perspective of what Budweiser. You know, it's still Budweiser. Right. They just come out with a cooler way of talking about the exact same brand. How do we right. do that when everybody's got the same exact products? Right. Yeah, no, there's only so many ways you can check your balance, right? So, but I think that goes back to the bank first versus the brand first mindset. Yeah. If you have a bank first mindset, you will think all we have to sell It's what everyone else has to sell. So we must create a campaign that makes the same thing seem different. That's a bank first mindset. Having the same products as everyone else in a brand first mindset is actually an incredible opportunity because you get to do the fun work, right? We talk about product isn't what it used to be. You get to really think about the positioning, the messaging, the data and the insights, all of those kind of ingredients that go into to making or baking a brand, you get to do that and you differentiate by focusing on the brand and what the brand means and the outcomes it can drive for employees, the outcomes it can drive for your consumers and your small businesses. It kind of gets away from that binary thinking, right? Like either we go all in on this product and we you know put a whatever an Easter bunny on it, or we don't. And we go to the, it's not, it's just binary thinking that you lose a lot of momentum on. Whereas having a more holistic view of, you know, and Liz knows from work with me for a long time, like campaigns, I don't believe in campaigns. Campaigns are like, I'm going to breathe today. It does nothing. It is absolutely nothing except for prom- promote a, a bank first mindset. Like I just, I hate campaigns. Well, is it- this reminds me. So my wife works in advertising. I think three of you knew that last year we were on a hike and this is sadly the nerdy kinds of things we do when we're on romantic couple getaways together. We were having a conversation about uh, marketing within banking. They have a couple, you know, marquee banks, they have some smaller banks. So she's just been digging in and understanding the team. 
And we were having this discussion around, you know, strategy and positioning. And she was stunned to find out how many banks and credit unions there are in this country. And so are we. Yes. So are we. (laughs) And then throw in the neobanks, right? And the alternative lenders and, you know, the fact that you can bank with Amazon for all intents and purposes. And she said, are there enough unique positionings to support that many? I said, well, actually, probably no. But I think in the heart, one of the problems that they can, they exist right now, looking so much the same, is they all approach it from the I am a banker, I am a credit union, and they don't have different missions. And Liz, I know mission is a big thing for you. Hmm. Talk to us about the, the mission within financial services. Yeah. So I think that, you know, uh, again, sort of touching on uh, Jim's point that, you know, people get really hung up on the taglines. They also get really hung up on their mission statements. And one of the things that we do in the book is we actually show five or six, you know, banks' mission statements. And you really can't tell the difference between any of them because they're all about serving the customer, loving the community, being part of, you know, the, the geography that the that they live in. But those are not really missions. You know, brands have Again, coming back to Patagonia, they're about changing the world and they're unafraid of having that as a mission. And if you start to think about a mission being about what really matters to people, what really matters to you as an institution, then that comes back to that whole kind of a fair exchange piece. So imagine if your product wasn't you know, a credit card, it wasn't a savings account. It actually was what you were doing for the world. You know, the example I've used before is kind of Studio Bank. If you think about really driving, you know, many of the the kind of gig worker banks that, that are emerging, the lilies of this world that have recognized a set of challenges, issues, or emotive concepts, aspiration being the big one, that people will drive towards because then banking doesn't become a function. Your solution doesn't become a feature. It becomes part of the lifestyle and it's part of what matters and it's part of people's day-to-day thinking. And that's the real shift to brand and the shift to mission thinking in banking. And I really, we, I think we feel that that's the the big opportunity that lots of banks have to to pivot fairly quickly. Jim, I'm curious as you think about mission and the number of boardrooms you've been in having this discussion, you know, in how many mission statements you've seen, you know, sadly, most of them, you know, reside or mission values are hanging on the back of the bathroom door, but, or in the break room, I guess. Um, How many banks do you think before versus now really get the importance of mission and that mission does not equal community, as Liz said? You know, that's interesting because I I don't think they understand it, but I think more and more financial institutions now are are becoming keen to segmentation and serving certain communities much better. Key Bank puts out there and they they do it um, much better with the medical community and tech community, especially on their West Coast branches. I just had the, the good fortune two weeks in a row I interviewed uh, Rob Curtis from Daylight, um, which focuses on the LGBT community. And today I interviewed um, Corey LeBlanc from Locality. And all of a sudden I'm realizing that it's really easy to do branding and mission statements and all that when you aren't serving everybody. 
And, and oh, by the way, serving a community, everybody in a community, is not segmentation. It is, it's really hard to brand yourself as the friendliest bank as opposed to the bank that's really looking out for these people. And what's interesting about digital, and it makes it easier for branding, is that you now can serve a very micro segment and expand that to the universe. And universe can just be the United States and have vastly more customers. And when you start looking at embedded banking and, and BASS and banking as a service, you all of a sudden realize, geez, it really is even more important now to have branding because you can really micro-focus on who you're going to be best for and then find all the others in other areas that are trying to be the best for those as well. I mean, if, if I want to be the bank of athletes, then I want to I want to hook onto Nike's wagon. You know, I want Nike to hook onto my wagon. I want to give embedded banking to Nike. And all of a sudden, my brand has meaning. But if I'm saying, I want, I want to be the bank for all tennis shoe owners, again, I, I, it, it, it's really hard to build a specialty or a special message where there's value exchange. So you know, let's pivot to that for a second, Jim, because if you know, Finastra had that study that 85% of all banks say they're going to get into banking as a service over the next 12 to 18 months, which we all know it's going to take longer than that. But now if 85% of you are doing it, we're back to you know, this whole idea of how are you differentiating and it's further exasperated yeah, I can't say that word. So it's further complicated by the fact that you're not the customer facing brand now, right? So how do you build brand and mission when you're not the one interfacing with the customer? It's who you select to partner with, I think. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to oversimplify it that, you know, if if I say I'm the, the financial institution for, for the digital small businesses, and then go out in the marketplace and pick up every organization that wants to embed or to be bank of the service. Then, I, then my my brand is about as uh, hollow as it was to begin with. Well, I mean, what do you guys think? You, Liz, you guys, listen, Allison, you guys are the experts in this. Well, I would not go that far, but my my acronym is different. I don't think it should be banking as a service. Banking is a service, and I think we we all need to have that mindset. It is a service. Um, already. And so, um, but I mean, Jason, I think it's a good question. And it goes back to, again, this, these sort of pre-held notions, this binary thinking that brand is something that is external to a consumer, right? And, you know, it, it all depends on your customer set, like we talked about employees before. And Baz, your customer set is, is different, right? It's, it's a different customer set, a different niche or a different segment. And you still follow the same principles and and processes that you would for you know a, a standard kind of B two C play. It it really is very similar. So um, I think banking is a service, and that's where I'd like to see us um, go. But you're right; if we're not careful and we practice kind of practice some binary thinking, we'll be in the same. We'll be having this conversation X time from now about how do we differentiate. Um, in in Baz and and Liz, I know you you've got some thoughts on this too. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know the more that particularly as I'm kind of thinking about how banking is a banking is a service <laughs> emerges, 
it's really, you know, thinking that that consumer and, and other tech companies have been doing a few years ago. I've done a lot of work with kind of Microsoft historically looking at what their future kind of tech um you know, positioning should be. And, you know, two or three years ago, they were really leaning very strongly into this concept of B to B to X. So that as marketers or as brands, you're not really leaning into, you know, I market direct to consumers or I market direct to businesses, successful brands. And I think any bank that's thinking about, you know, Baz as a solution, it's B to B to X. And you need to start with what does that end customer want to do? How does your customer then want to do that? And then how do you solve both sets of problems? And to me, that's what a successful bank brand will be in the future. You're solving the B to B to X problem, not just B to B or B to C. That also then requires an understanding of X's problem, though, too, Mm -hmm. right? Which, you know, if we already struggle to not be FI or bank centric, now we actually need to become really good cultural anthropologists of a second order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 which it, is a tall order, but it, but yes, yeah. it can be done. And, you know, it also really opens the door for open banking because then it, you you can reinforce the branding, the message, and the value proposition through the partnerships that you build to serve that X in the B to B to X. Where you know, I again get back to the conversation I had with Daylight Bank, and they're building all these partnerships with other organizations that can support the community they're trying to serve. That can be the same for those banks that want to serve the small business community, maybe simply the publishers in the small business community, or the real estate developers in the small business community. Uh, There's a bank in Turkey that once, you know, really served the, the agricultural set by bringing together the financing people for the equipment. The horticulturalist, horticulturalist talking about the ground and the, the, the earth itself, the meteorologists to talk about the weather, the people that sold seed, all of a sudden the bankers in there too. But these people are not connected except in this open banking environment, which is to serve, to this point, the X and whoever that X is. And then it becomes something you're passionate about. All of a sudden you think about if you're on the other side, you're a farmer that no longer has to go to seven or eight different storefronts miles and miles and miles away, and maybe doesn't even have access to people in some of those categories. All of a sudden, there is nothing you could do that could get me away from that financial institution that brought this party together. Right. You know. Well, I think, you know, uh, I know you're kind of half joking there, uh, Jason, with the culture, cultural anthropologists, and so it seems seems a bit daunting, but this is where data comes in, right? And, and data and brand are not separate things. You absolutely can, if you think about the money that is spent in this industry to have finite detail on checking account holders, and you were telling me that we can't possibly find out data about farmers, I, I'm not I, I'm not going for that because we can. It's in our wheelhouse. It's in what we have the capabilities to do today. It's a different lens and a different different input so yeah. you know it's well, interesting too it's 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 part of branding is the ability to say no mm-hmm. so not to accept everybody that comes i i'm jason i'm sure you're in the same situation but with my podcast the number of people that say i want to be on the show and yes i could make more money i could hit more people but the reality is if you stay focused on your brand and say no 
that allows you to stay on point as opposed to continually saying, I'll take all comers. I mean, heck, the way most of us played Twitter at the beginning. You know, I'll take any follower. And then all of a sudden you go, no, I can't talk to all those people. And and yeah. we know the people out there that will be the specialist in everything in order to get ranked to the top of every list. You go like, you can't be the best at everything. At some point you got to decide, what am I going to be passionate about? What's my brand going to represent? And I know, you know, Liz and Allison, you do that in your daily life, in your real jobs. You turn down opportunities that you go, yeah, it would be great. You know, but on the other, at the end of the day, usually these things explode. They just do. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the kind of the, the other side of that is, and I talk about this kind of concept of, you know, creating honeypots. So if you're creating a brand and a story, then it's less about, you know, rejecting people and it's more about attracting the right people because you're solving a very unique problem. And it comes back to what you said, Jason, all these people that are selling exactly the same products, but what they're not doing is solving problems. What they are doing is they're selling products. What brands do very well is create things that attract the right people. They attract the most profitable customers because they're solving a highly specific problem. Coming back to your Nikes, you know, if you're a runner, you know exactly the kind of shoe that you want. You know how it has to fit. And you know that Nike have got so much data and they've invested so much in understanding you as a runner that if you turn up there looking for your running shoe, it's going to fit. It's going to be the right shoe and that, you know, you don't care about all the other things that are out there. So you don't have to say no, because you know that you can say yes to the brand. Yeah. Well, but I, I think part of that, and this goes back to the original part of saying no, is your brand can't and shouldn't resonate with everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, Jim, I think you drove that yeah. point home well. And it's hard because we try and be all things to all people. And then we're nothing but a tagline to everyone. Nobody before, wants to say no to a friend or somebody that could become a friend. Mm-hmm. True, true to that. But before we run out of time, I got this phenomenal thing in the mail today. Yay, uh, I'm so excited. I Yay. love the I love my digital advanced copy, you know, that I could yeah. read. But you know, I'm excited to get this up on the bookshelf so people will see it. Where can people find how to think like a brand, not a bank? And yes. if they want to learn more and engage with you, how do they do that? Absolutely. So our website is thinklikeabrandbook.com. So we've got, you can get the book there. You can talk to Liz and I, and we put all of the data from the book into a PowerPoint that is beautiful that you can use to talk to people in your institution. There's going to be more of that um, coming. So uh, we we know the challenge, we know the struggle. And so we're, we're just trying to put everything out there we can on the website to help out. Well, thanks, uh, special co-host Jim from the Financial Brand coming to join and Banking Transform podcast. Always worth a listen as well. But thank you all. Um, Exciting stuff. And glad you're helping change the industry. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. From crypto to ESG and real-time payments, the world is changing fast. These new realities need bold thinking. It's time to start your day with a bold move, but bold moves take preparation. To help you stay ahead and reach the future faster, FIS brings you Rise, sending the latest industry expertise, news, and information directly to your inbox. 
Fuel your competitive advantage and get the latest FIS expert insights on news, trends and disruptors influencing the financial services market today. A bold future awaits you. Sign up now. Go to fisglobal.com slash rise. That's fisglobal.com slash R-I-S-E to subscribe. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks and invests. Hey there, welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists with Brett King and myself, Rob Tursik. And this week, our guest is Glenn White. And Glenn and I were having a real interesting uh, discussion a moment ago about who owns the brand and who's going to manage the process of explaining that brand or conveying that brand in new media. This is a relevant topic for our listeners because the very near future is going to involve completely different kinds of media, stuff that most of us don't spend time in today, but very likely will be in the next five years. I'm talking specifically about the metaverse. We've heard this term so many times lately, ever since uh, Facebook's big announcement that they're changing the name of the company to Meta, and they're going to focus on being less of a social network company and more of a metaverse company. It seems like mass media has been fascinated by this notion of what a metaverse is. So Glenn, do me a favor, share with us your your view of what you think the metaverse actually is. Can you give us a, a proper definition? Whenever somebody says metaverse, I hear internet, so you'll forgive me. I, I, it's in my in my head, it's the evolution of what the internet is. Um, I I think I tend to think of metaverse as a, as a brand play more than a more than a practical product play. Like people talk about being a metaverse company. What does that even mean? Yeah, I, I don't like you can't tell what do me. You what you think it means? Is. What do I think? Yeah, what do you think it means? Because it's such an undefined term. So when someone says, think of us as a metaverse company, what are they trying to get us to think of? Trying to separate your money from your wallet. Um, I, I think, <laughs> I, 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 I tend to, if you're talking about practical problems, like I tend to think of things in terms of practical problems, right? Like I, I tend to think of when somebody says metaverse, what I hear is I hear relationship, right? Like I want, there, there is a relationship between X and Y. And that goes down a very, 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 very deep rabbit hole, right? So we were just talking about the relationship between brands and, and players or brands and consumers or brands and you know aficionados or whatever that is. That relationship is how that relationship takes place and what that means is sort of the, the goal of what a metaverse wants to be. No different than the internet in many ways, right? You, you think about the well, internet. okay, I, I hear you, I hear you. But the, for the folks who are listening, who are still a little bit puzzled because we haven't have actually given a satisfactory definition of the internet, uh, sorry, of the metaverse. Let me offer this. Uh, so the metaverse is proposed to be an immersive 3D space. Some people call it a virtual world or an immersive world, but the idea is it's all around you. So unlike the internet, which we look at on the screens, so it's you know, internet's typically contained inside of a rectangle. And even today, the internet consists mostly of rectangles, whether they're rectangles that have video or rectangles that have text pages. But the metaverse is meant to be immersive and real-time 3D, meaning you can move through it. It's above you, it's below you, around you. It's a space you can move through. And you might think of that as like a video game. Uh, you know, Today, 3 billion people are playing real-time 3D video games, so they're quite familiar with that. And, by the, and given that fact that so many people are already doing video games on the web, seems like a logical extension that those worlds, those game worlds could also include other things that aren't games. Entertainment, I, we're starting to see concerts in the metaverse. 
yeah. art shows. Some people are suggesting you can do education there. Some people say you're going to be able to work in the metaverse. Now, Glenn, when you hear all that, I hear you. Yes, of course. It's about a relationship, right? That's what you say. When you hear metaverse, you hear relationship. I get that. But I think what we're talking about is a relationship between the metaverse platform and the end user. I and that brings us back to the concept of intermediation because that yeah. platform wants to get between the user and the brand that's that's sponsoring. why that that, that uh, I reject that definition for a couple of reasons. One, are you telling me that blind people are not going to be able to take part in the metaverse? Uh, because the way I've just framed it, sure. I mean, can they play video games? Yes, and do. Okay, so in the same affordances that are made make it possible for blind people to play video games, they'll probably exist for the metaverse, wouldn't they? Well, I mean, it it would depend. Right. And, and that's okay. kind of what, what I'm getting at is I don't you're talking about sort of the the computer human inter, interface that that creates that. And my point is that the that the relationships of the data underneath the mm -hmm. engagement with the data is really what matters. The form that it takes. Right. Is less important than the relationship with the data and the interaction with the data. So like. When when you talk about it being an immersive 3D world, like, okay, but my life is an immersive 3D world. What value, I have a spreadsheet that's in front of me, the value of 3D representations of data aside, it's a spreadsheet. It doesn't have to be 3D. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff there that sort of begs the question is, what's actually the relationship between the individual and and the the content that they're consuming let's stop using data let's start using content so how you consume that content if you're focused on the form of how people are consuming that content you've sort of missed the point right and that's sort of like saying focus, people are focused on the radio and not focused on the songs people are focused on the 3d representation of this stuff and not focused on the experience so so and let's let I, I want to just dive in to a little bit of that, which is something I know you've worked on from a policy and a platform perspective, which is, um, you know, what the the economics of the metaverse could be like. You know, I know we've talked about this extensively offline. So this I, this, this stuff is where I find your view extremely compelling and very interesting. But um, to, to take the power away from the platforms like the metas and so forth and to create, um, you know, these metaverse 3D internet-based environments that are inclusive and, you know, people can work and live in because, you know, potentially metaverse will play more of a role in society in terms of, um, you know, community building, um, collaboration, things like that, um, it, you know, as a distraction from inequality and, and those sort of things. But tell me about how you think um, in an ideal world we would develop the metaverse for, you know, in, in terms of economically, um, in terms of rights in respect to content and data for, for individuals and, and corporations and things like that? So you have to sort of ask and answer the first question is, do you believe in intellectual property rights? Like you, you, you start there. Do you believe that if an individual creates a thing, whatever that thing is, they have the right to monetize that? They have a right to give it away. They have a right to hoard it. Like, do, do you agree with that? And, and I don't know that I have a, a straight, clear answer on that one. But let's assume that you do believe that that is a true statement. That is to say, I create a new thing. I have the right to that thing. 
Because it is a digital artifact, we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt who created that thing. We know who owns that thing. We can transfer that thing. We can do whatever we want. We can license that thing. That thing is pretty straightforward. And those systems exist. Like, yes, there needs to be some evolution of those things. But ultimately, that allows you to sell an asset, right? And that asset could then be used in somebody else's creation. And you can deal with any number of forms of compensation regarding the usage of that asset, right? It, it, that's when we talk about the, the, we talked about marketing, we talked about it being the, the exchange of value. All of a sudden we've got some interesting ideas here because let's say I go ahead and I'm a musical artist. I create a song, that song, I can license that song so that somebody can use it to be a soundtrack in their experience. And I can get paid either flat out I can get paid per play. I can get paid based on whatever I want because it's all trackable. Or I might pay somebody to put it in a really popular experience to get the exposure I want, right? The exchange of value is bi-directional. There's no situation where I'm just selling stuff. Or you sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy. There's the ability you created a value exchange that allows you to go ahead and transfer those things backwards and forth. So all of a sudden, the, the creation of assets and the collaboration of that stuff becomes interesting because the compensation that normally comes alongside the creation of content can be distributed based on how you contribute that. And you can negotiate that on a per asset basis if you want to. Or if you create a platform that allows for the creation of these experiences, you can take a percentage of that if you so chose. Um, that's, you know, again, there's no shortage of compensation models that that then devolve towards the creation of content. And that gets sort of to our earlier Nike shoe example, right? Where they're going to go ahead and create content. They're going to expect some sort of compensation for it. But to, to the earlier point, they've been paying EA for years, as has Adidas and other companies, have been paying these companies for years to put their products for product placement, right? So it's, it's bi-directional. They're going to create these assets. Maybe you license the asset from Nike in order to be able to put the shoes in your game. Maybe Nike pays you to put the shoes in the game. Maybe you just agree that it's good for both of you and you don't charge anybody either way. Like the exchange of value based on collaboration, creation of content is, is probably. What, what, what about, what about monetary ex exchange in the metaverse? What about, um, you know, digital money and how that might evolve in the metaverse? Any, any ideas on that? You know, the use of wallets yeah. and so forth. Yeah. I, currency is a thing. There needs to be currency in some form or fashion. I, we can talk about what that is. Um, this gets into sort of how I think about the internet slash metaverse um, topology sort of across, across the board. There are going to be areas that are controlled by brands or by individuals. These areas... Um, are going to have gates between them and other areas. Um, moving stuff into and out of those areas is, and, and this gets back to the relationship conversation we had earlier, Rob, which is understanding the relationship between two brands so that that way there's agreed upon portability of stuff between, currency is one such thing, but it could just as easily be objects or data or anything else. Moving it from one such area to another area requires agreement. A relationship, an understanding of what what constitutes that stuff. We talk about the metaverse. We talk about earlier. We talked about the idea of requiring compensation in order to be able to create a, a substantial amount of content. That only works if I can take that that compensation out of 
the digital ecosystem and put it into meat space because I can't eat bits. Like it, it, you ultimately there's food, shelter, water, all this other stuff. Don't want to get into the idea of ultimately all that stuff becomes free. And like, I, I, I want to believe that that's a thing in the future, but in the, in, in, in the intervening time, people need to eat. So being able to move that currency into and out of the ecosystem is probably necessary. Listen, I'm, I'm hearing the things you're saying, and I'm just trying to imagine what our audience is thinking as they listen to this. Uh, it sounds like we're talking, we have a fairly technical conversation about the creation and exchange of value in a virtual marketplace. And it really doesn't matter. And you're using these terms interchangeably as to what the content is, right? So you use the example of a song, you use the example of an advertiser or a brand, um, and we're using that interchangeably. And I get that, but that's a very technical conversation and it's a little bloodless in a way, because um, I'm curious about what are people actually doing in these virtual worlds, uh, these metaverse worlds. And the reason I bring that up is that this morning, um, there was some news about the metaverse, which is actually worth paying attention to. I think it's quite relevant here. I've criticized many of the early metaverse launches uh, several times on this show and, uh, and other forums um, because they focused on business model first. And in other words, they focused on exactly the kinds of technical discussions you folks are having right now, which is, you know, how is value created? How's it exchanged? Who's going to control it? Who's going to own the customer? Who's going to own the impressions and count them and monetize them and so forth? And what they failed to do is focus on building a community. In other words, giving people a reason to be there in the first place and making it really fun and engaging and giving them fun things to do. Um, and I'm referring specifically to worlds like Decentraland and Sandbox. Uh, the idea there was if we build a platform and we figure out the marketplace and we figure out how value is created and exchanged, other people will figure out the fun stuff to do and they'll come build those experiences on top of our platform. I bring that up because just today in Cointelegraph, there's an article that says that the, the value of real estate in these virtual worlds, Sandbox and, and Decentraland, has plummeted on average 85% since the beginning of the year. Good time to so buy. Last year, you know, it was a little bit of a land grab, kind of a gold rush mentality. People were rushing out to buy virtual land, you know, kind of build their homestead on the, on the digital frontier in the metaverse. Some folks were excited because they thought, oh boy, I can buy land that's near, uh, you know, some celebrity. Like Snoop Dogg had some virtual land. Great. I'll get virtual land next to his. It'll be worth something. Do you really want him as a neighbor? I wonder if he's growing know. virtual weed at his virtual Exactly. It was estate. all kind of hyped up. The problem is you come to these towns now and uh, there's there's nobody in them. There's nobody in these virtual worlds. There's you know, It'll say there's a thousand people on the server, but when you show up, you can't see anybody in sight. And so my sense is that a lot of effort's gone into analyzing the economics of these worlds, um, not as much analysis has gone into how do you populate them with people and give them something fun to do? What's well, your take on that? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring out my Marshall McLuhan quote again. The first thing they're doing is they're trying to replicate the old paradigm in the new, and it doesn't fit. There's an infinite amount of real estate in the internet. There's an infinite amount of real estate yeah. in the metaverse, right? And that yeah, means that the true. scarcity model of real estate is broken from the get-go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? So like if that's a that's a scam. Like if you're trying to create artificial scarcity in a digital realm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like like people if, are like if this anything, will be great. If this will anything. Be great. No. But to your point, there's community is important, but that isn't predicated on what land you own. Yeah. That's the relationship we're talking about. And that gets back to what I'm talking about. What's important here is the relationship. 
What's important here is the, the, the network of relationships between people that are going to do things and collaborate together and all this other stuff and creating systems and spaces that allow people to collaborate, create content, consume content collaboratively. That's what matters. And so when you talk about a 3D shared consensual, what, like, really? Like, that's what you're focused on? You're focused on trying to replicate the old world in the new? Like, sure, you can do that. Go ahead and do that. Like, people need to do that in order to be able to find their feet, right? The shared sporting event or the shared concert, those are great experiences and they're fun and they're engaging and immersive and they bring all sorts of value and they're fantastic, right? But you think about some of the stuff that's happening with some of those events, which are carrying it far beyond what you can go, you can see just by going to a concert or by going to a sporting event. The idea of seeing the sporting event from every player's point of view is so different than actually just passively watching the sporting event on, a, on whatever camera the director decides. Now we're starting to evolve that into something that's far more interesting. And so mm -hmm. what you're really talking about when you, you talk about real estate or you talk about, you know, I, I'm going to regret this. It, somebody is going to Take me to test with it. You talk about NFTs or anything that's creating artificial scarcity in a digital landscape yeah. is destined to fail, has to fail, because what it's doing is it's gatekeeping. It's being exclusive rather than inclusive, which hammers home your point, Rob, which is it is about the relationships between people. You want to be collaborative. You want to be more inclusive, not less inclusive. So gatekeeping, real estate, all the things that are exclusive by nature have to fail. Yeah, I okay. think I, I think ultimately this is like at the heart of the debate of where we go as a society. Uh, you know, it's not just metaverse. I mean, if you look at the problems that we're going to have to deal with, um, you know, over the next 30 years, sea level rise, food scarcity, displacement of eco-refugees, um, you know, access to healthcare, all of those things, this question of in inclusivity versus um, scarcity, you know, from an economics perspective, is I think at the heart of human philosophy in terms of where the species goes, right? You know, as big Bigger, bigger than the metaverse, you know, because ultimately, you know, we have we are going to come to an inflection point or a decision point, a fork in the road, if you like, for the human species over the next 30 years, where we have to decide to double down on a system of scarcity based on capitalism that creates massive inequality and in two different classes of people, very, very rich and extremely poor, subsisting on UBI, or we're going to have to rethink the way our economic works, economics work for society in terms of inclusivity. You know, there's no functional reason why the economy today, for example, can't provide access to housing, healthcare, education, and food for everyone. So the question is, why don't we do that today? Well, that's a this is a an economic or social philosophy that we've developed over the last few hundred years around capitalism, etc. Right, and I think um, I, I think an advanced human species, any advanced species will eventually come to the point where you don't prioritize economics over human well-being right you don't prioritize the health of the planet over you know making money but that's where we're at today and i think this is where we're in the last gasps of the system it could take another 50 years to to completely evolve on it but um it, it just seems to me that the the human species to take it to the next level we have to get rid of this sort of concept of scarcity 
I mean, is that too big picture? I, I, the question that it probably is for the scope of the conversation. But having said that, having said that, why replicate that in the metaverse? Right. You don't have right. to, right? Which is what, you know, to get to your real estate thing, Rob, why would you do that? Why would you limit the number of things that somebody can enjoy or experience? Why would you do that? Well, you can see what they're doing. It's your Marsh McGoon thing. They're transposing an existing business model that everyone understands from the real world into a virtual environment. But but you're quite right. It's not a good transposition. Like It doesn't actually make economic sense to do it that way. But what you're driving at is interesting to me, and it kind of goes back to the point Britt was making a minute ago. Um, you're really wanting to talk about relationships. You're less interested in the tech well, what we have in the digital world is is digitally mediated relationships for better or for worse. You know, like right now, you and I aren't sitting in a room talking. That'd be one thing. We're not doing that. We have Zoom going on. So we have Zoom in between us, but it connects us together, even though we're in different places. So that is, you know, it's kind of a win. We get a benefit there. Tell me a little bit about how digital technology has changed the way people relationships work uh, and maybe disrupted the, the traditional sense of relationships. So I think it's distilled it quite a bit. Um, I think while we've gained, we've gained some stuff and we've lost some stuff, right? The truth of the matter is I met my wife on the internet, right? I didn't meet her in a bar. I didn't meet her at a party. I didn't meet her in a club. I met, she lived literally across the country. And I, I met her in a virtual space, right? Playing a game. And you think about how common that is nowadays. You talk about people who have created relationships online who have never met each other in physical proximity that consider themselves very, very good friends. So in many ways, you know, you and I have never met in person, Rob. However, you and I have had a, what I consider to be an extraordinarily meaningful conversation that's been very, very um, beneficial to me. And I, I, you know, I think that that is really distilling the relationship down. It's not worrying about the physical presence. It's not worrying about our socioeconomic status. It's not worrying about whether I'm sitting in a, a small room or a large house. It's not worrying, like, it doesn't matter where I am. And mm -hmm. so I think in many ways, it has equalized a great deal. Now, there are costs, right? There are costs and there are barriers. And, and, and we want to get to a point where everybody has equal access to such things, right? Where people have access to devices and access to internet and access to things that allow people to carry on these relationships and conversations and so on and so forth. Um, there's also been some downside to it, right? There's been, yeah. the, you know, obviously the level of harassment and toxicity, the idea of, of all of these things that physical proximity tends to inhibit you walking up to somebody and being horrible to them, right? Because- yeah. Yeah, You're people can say things online that they would never say to someone's face. Now, you could view that as a good thing and a bad thing. Let's right there. There is the ability for um, a teenager to explore who they are, the ability of people to understand the relationships they have, the ability for people to experience environments that are not theirs that could be oppressive or otherwise. Right, the ability to gain or, knowledge or liberating, depending, yeah, or liberating, right? exactly. And so, there's, one of the things we found in online games is that people people love to experiment. They, you know, they they try, they try different genders, different identities, and that seems to be not everybody, but a pretty significant chunk of the people who are playing games. They want to explore different aspects of their personality. I think that's a cool thing. So it's liberating for some folks, for sure. 
Yeah. And I think that hey, that's guys, what we're talking about. I, I'm mindful of the fact that we, we're running out of time. We've got about five minutes left. Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, what I normally like to do at this point of the conversation is is get a bit more, you know, sci-fi and a bit more futurist. And, Glenn, I know you've read a ton of sci-fi, you know, and even though you don't consider yourself a futurist, you've always been on this leading edge of technology. So I want to project out a little bit, um, beyond, you know, beyond this conversation around the metaverse and, and look maybe 30, 40, 50 years in the future. Um, you know, uh, what is it that excites you about the future? What, what do you think, um, what do you see coming down the line that, that you, you sort of can't wait to see us develop as humans from a technology perspective that you think will be uh, um, hugely transformative? So I'll start with, um, I'd like to see much more accessibility um, just sort of in general. And I think that, that things are slowly moving in that direction. But when I talk about accessibility, I am talking about it sort of financially and, and all these other things, all the barriers there, but I'm also talking about physical accessibility. Thank you for being on The Futurist this week. Um, how can people stay in touch with you and follow your uh, your musings on the future or game with you, um, you know, uh, in, in the virtual world? Justicar, um, J-U-S-T-I-C-A-R on, uh, on Twitter. And it's my gamer tag on Xbox, um, or you can ping me at marketingtechnerd at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, it was uh, great to meet you. Great to meet you too, Rob. Thank you very much for all the thinking. Well, that's it for another week of The Futurists. Uh, if you like the show, don't forget to give us a five-star review. Uh, give us a shout-out on social media or in the metaverse, I guess. We're not in the metaverse yet, Rob. We've got to fix that. We've got to have the Futurist presence in the metaverse. Well, we could be, yeah. Um, but uh, make sure, yeah, leave us a review. Give us some comments. Give us some feedback. That's how people get to know about the show. Um, you know, please follow us on Twitter if you're on that platform and uh, likewise on Facebook and LinkedIn where it's the Futurist Network. Um, but uh, my thanks to Kevin Hersham, who has uh, helped us in the audio chair this week, Elizabeth Severance, uh, Sylvia and Carlo on the social media side, and to my co-host, Rob, obviously. We will be back with you next week. But until then... We will see you in the future. In the future. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severance, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.